0: Welcome back to The Jewish Story, a Jewish history podcast for the 21st century. In this show, we'll take a look back at the history of the Jewish people, relying on historical documents, archaeologic artifacts, and linguistic data to paint a picture of the past. Last episode, we looked at the period of time between 70 and 250 CE. We saw an increase in open Roman antisemitism culminate in two major Jewish revolts the Kitos War and Bar Kochba Rebellion both of which were eventually quelled by the Romans. We then saw Emperor Hadrian recreate Jerusalem as a true Roman city, banning Jewish entry and outlawing many Jewish practices across the empire. As the Jewish rebellions faded into the past, we saw successive Roman emperors loosen up on the legal persecution of Jews, allowing a relative flourishing of Jewish culture and tradition. And with the second temple destroyed and Jews banned from Jerusalem, we saw Jews across the world reinvent their religion creating great Jewish institutions like the Talmud and the Patriarchate. This week, we will shift focus to the foundling religion of Christianity and its transformation from a small prophetic following into an independent religion that would grow to encompass the entire Roman Empire. And, of course, we will witness the consequences this would have for the Jewish population of Rome and the Diaspora. But before we begin, a reminder that I love to hear from listeners. So send any kibitzes, questions, and quandaries to jewishstorypod at gmail.com. That's jewishstorypod at gmail.com. In the centuries following the death of Jesus, his followers continued to spread his teachings to others, revering him as the Messiah and Son of God. Person by person, the cult of Christians began to grow, attracting members who were intrigued by monotheism but looking for something different than traditional Judaism. This slow propagation continued into the 3rd and 4th centuries CE, by which point three overlapping branches of monotheism had emerged. The first and largest branch, which included the majority of Jews in the Middle East and Roman Empire, remained committed to traditional Judaism, which by this point had survived at least 1,500 years and spread across much of the ancient world. The second branch included those who were looking for a blend between Judaism and the new, less prescriptive Christianity. This group, described by several early Christian writers, and famously including Jesus's brother, James, were called Evyonim, Hebrew for the poor ones. The Evyonim, being neither fully Christian nor Jewish, were prone to harassment from both Romans and Jews, and so most chose to settle in modern day Jordan, Syria, and Egypt, to avoid persecution. Theologically, you could think of them as an ancient version of Jews for Jesus. They considered Jesus to have been the true Messiah, but stopped short of believing that he was the Son of God. Congruent with Jesus's original teachings, the Evionim believed in bands of good and evil angels, but did not subscribe to the idea of original sin, instead believing in the Jewish tradition of one's slate being wiped clean each Yom Kippur. Following from Jesus's baptism in the Jordan River, the Evyonim seemed highly concerned with purity and bathing rituals. And despite being generally opposed to the temple as an institution, there is evidence that at least in some places, Jews and Evionim shared temple space, suggesting that their theologies were not so radically different as to be incompatible. The third branch of monotheism was composed of those who fully embraced Christianity, believing that Jesus was both God and Messiah. But even among this group of early Christians, there was a lot of debate about what exactly being Christian meant. One example of this theological divide was an argument between two very early Christian leaders, the apostles Peter and Paul. Peter, on the one hand, felt that it was important to ensure that those who wished to continue practicing Jewish rituals would still be welcomed into the Christian church. In fact, he was so committed to this notion that he famously refused to sit down to dinner with any uncircumcised man. This became a point of contention between him and Paul, who, for his part, felt that the separation of Christians and Jews was critical to maintaining Christianity's purity and survival. In his view, now that Jesus had bestowed his light and truth upon the world, pre-existing Jewish practices and beliefs were so yesterday. Perhaps the most important theological contribution that Paul made to the religion was to shift the focus of Christian theology from Jesus' life to his death. This shift eventually birthed the myth that the Jews were responsible for Jesus' death and had thus committed deicide. Despite the theological differences between Judaism and early Christianity, there was still a lot of crossover between the two groups. Many Christians still observed fundamental Jewish practices like Shabbat and circumcision, and the earliest known church, dated to the 3rd century, is painted with scenes from both the Old and New Testaments. It seems that the Jews did some borrowing from Christianity as well. A Jewish burial ground dated to the fourth century is composed of an underground carved stone cavern, its style very similar to Christian catacombs of the period, although decorated with Jewish imagery of the Garden of Eden, Menorot, and sporting Hebrew inscriptions. For several centuries, Christianity continued to develop and grow alongside Judaism, with frequent crossover and blending in between. But in the early fourth century, one man would transform the reach of Christianity to encompass much of the ancient world. In order to understand how this all happened, it's important that we get some context about the state of the Roman Empire in the third century. By this point in its history, the Roman Empire had grown to gargantuan proportions and its infrastructure and bureaucracy was having trouble keeping up. The rapid expansion of the empire meant that it was constantly encroaching on the territory of neighboring groups, leading to frequent military conflicts, particularly with the Persians to the east and the Goths to the north. All of this conflict led to three big changes in Roman society. First, the constant Persian and Gothic invasions required soldiers and weapons to suppress, and soldiers and weapons cost money to buy, money that the empire simply didn't have. The result of these economic demands was increased taxation and rapid hyperinflation of Roman currency, ultimately destabilizing the Roman economy. Second, with the influx of soldiers required to defend the empire's borders, Roman society itself had become more militaristic and the dominant social group shifted to primarily include traveling soldiers as opposed to the previous social elite who now began to fade in importance. Finally, with the empire so completely focused on their military efforts, the city of Rome itself became less and less important as its capital. Instead, the de facto capital shifted to a small fortress city called Byzantium. Byzantium, now Istanbul, was located on a small strip of land connecting Europe with Turkey and the Middle East, and sitting right between the Black and Mediterranean Seas. This location made it a strategic point of access to both the Danube frontier to the west and the frontier with the Persian Empire to the east. In the year 284, with Rome in serious trouble, a military general named Diocletian became the next emperor of Rome. Diocletian is an important figure in Roman history for many reasons, but he features in our Jewish story because of one huge change he made to the governmental structure of Rome. A change which ultimately led to the rise of Christianity. Diocletian recognized that the Roman Empire had simply become too large for one man to rule in isolation. And so he established what came to be known as the Tetrarchy, a new system of government by which rule of the empire was split among four individuals. It worked like this the empire was divided into two halves, east and west, with each half governed by a co emperor, called an Augustus. Diocletian became Augustus of the East, ruling over Egypt, Israel, Syria, and Turkey, and he appointed a man named Maximian as Augustus of the West to rule Italy and North Africa. In turn, each co-Augustus then appointed a helper, called a Caesar, who functioned essentially as a vice-president to help rule the Augusti's territories. Diocletian appointed a man named Galerius as his Caesar in the East to hold dominion over Greece and Illyria, while Maximian chose Constantius to provide over France, Britain, and Gaul in the West. The idea was that when the Augusti were ready to retire, they would pass their purple cloaks on to their chosen Caesars, who would then become Augusti in their own right and choose their own Caesars to replace them. Although not set in stone, the original Tetrarchs had struck a deal that the sons of the Western leaders, Constantius and Maximian, would become the next caesars once the two original augusti retired. However, in the early years of the 4th century, the eastern caesar, Galerius, made a bid for power and convinced both augusti to change their plans. Instead of Constantius and Maximian, they agreed to appoint Galerius's nephew, Maximinus, and his old buddy, Severus, as the new caesars. This decision effectively stacked the decks of power hugely in Galerius's favor making him something close to the sole emperor, and left the sons of Maximian and Constantius out in the cold. This act of betrayal ended up being the inciting event that led to the emergence of the first Christian ruler of the Roman Empire, Constantine, the son of Constantius. Without a true position of power, Constantine ended up retreating back to his father's territory in the west, and became a beloved soldier and commander there. When his father died in a battle against the Gallic tribes in 306 CE, the Western legions named Constantine the true Augustus in defiance of Galerius's pal Severus, who held the official title. This uprising against his friend made Galerius, who was now Augustus in the East, pretty angry. But recognizing Constantine's popularity and military prowess, He knew that an open war between them could be devastating to his own position. And so, Galerius begrudgingly accepted Constantine's rise to power, but refused to allow him the title of Augustus, only permitting him the rank of Caesar. In the winter of 311 CE, just after Galerius died of cancer, Maxentius, son of Maximian, declared war on the west, now governed by Constantine and his Augustus, Licinius. On Licinius's orders, Constantine marched an army east to quell Maxentius's rebellion. And it was during this military campaign that something remarkable happened, something that would radically change Constantine's worldview and go on to transform the entire Roman Empire. There are two versions of this story and it is unclear which, if any, are true. In the first version, an angel came to Constantine in a dream and ordered him to paint a symbol of Jesus Christ on his soldiers' clothes. In the second version, on the day of the battle, Constantine and his soldiers saw a cross appear in the sky with the words, In this sign you will conquer, etched beneath it. Whichever version you believe, Constantine quickly made an end of the usurper and ascended to become Augustus in the east. He situated his home base in Byzantium, the fortress city, and as time went on, became more and more openly Christian. His first overtly Christian act as Augustus was the issuing of the Edict of Tolerance in 313 CE, which made Christianity a religio licita of the Roman Empire, the status that Judaism already enjoyed. Over time, though, Constantine became more and more demonstrably favorable towards Christianity. He exempted the church from state taxes, restored Christian property that had been stolen by Diocletian during his anti-Christian campaign, and allowed churches to use the imperial post system of horses to more quickly spread their message across the realm. He also sanctioned the building of two large basilicas on the outskirts of Rome, and later in his rule began to directly mediate disputes involving the church. Licinius, who remained Augustus in the west, was far less favorable towards the church than Constantine, and ultimately, religion came to be a point of contention between the two Augusti. Things finally came to a head in 324 CE, during a great civil war between east and west. Constantine and his eastern legions, despite being outnumbered, defeated Licinius, and Constantine officially became the sole emperor of Rome. He renamed Byzantium Constantinople, and it became the new capital of the Roman Empire. Constantine's ascension to the role of emperor catapulted Christianity into the stratosphere of popularity. By the time of his death in 337, nearly half of the Roman Empire had converted to Christianity, and by the year 390, an estimated 90% of the empire was Christian. But where did this sudden skyrocketing of Christianity leave the Jews of Rome? The answer, as it turns out, is somewhat complicated. As Christianity grew, it became more and more important to codify some of its main rules and principles. And, along with this, it became increasingly important that it be separated from its Jewish roots. To this end, in 325 CE, the year after he became the emperor of Rome, Constantine called a meeting of Christian leaders called the First Council of Nicaea. As part of the council's discussions, they decided that Christian holidays in the Roman Empire should take precedence over Jewish ones, including the shifting of the Christian Sabbath to Sunday instead of Saturday, and, should Passover fall on the same day as Easter, that Passover must be moved. In a letter sent by Constantine to several bishops who were unable to make it to the council, he wrote, It was improper to follow the custom of the Jews in celebration of their holy festival. Because, their hands having been stained with crime, the minds of these wretched men are necessarily blinded. Let us therefore have nothing in common with the Jews who are our enemies. Let us studiously avoid all contact with their evil way. For how can they entertain right views on any point, having compassed the death of the Lord? Let not your pure minds share the customs of a senseless people so utterly depraved." From its beginnings in Paul's early theology, the concept of Jewish deicide had finally taken root with the most powerful man in the ancient world. But despite this clear demotion of Judaism to a second-class religion, Constantine was not always consistent in his anti-Semitism. In the year 330, he passed a law exempting local Jewish leaders from paying civic taxes, a benefit he would eventually bestow upon Christian leaders as well. When Constantine eventually died, rule of Rome passed jointly to his three sons, Constantine II, Constantius II, and Constans, who continued to uphold and perpetuate anti-Jewish legislation. But in the year 362, a man named Julian, who had been appointed by Constantius II to the rank of Caesar, rose up and challenged his superior's authority, ultimately succeeding him as emperor. Julian was raised by Christian parents, but throughout his life became more of what we would now consider a humanist. He was equally tolerant of all religions and promised the Jews that he would once again allow them to re-enter Jerusalem and would rebuild the Jewish temple. Julian's promises didn't seem to be just talk. In the spring of 363, the emperor appointed Alipius, an Antiochian man who had previously served as governor in Britain to oversee the temple project. Olypius sent a letter to Rabbi Hillel II to estimate the cost of the build, and a tax collector was even appointed to collect the necessary funds from Jewish communities, who had been fundraising for it. Supplies were gathered in Jerusalem, and a temporary synagogue was even constructed near the ruins of the old Second Temple. But, just as it was looking like the Third Temple was a sure thing, God sent the Romans a sign. Or at least, so they thought. Ammianus Marcellinus, a Roman soldier and historian, writes that, quote, fearful balls of fire burst forth near the foundations of the temple, burning several workers and making the spot inaccessible, unquote. These balls of fire were likely the result of shock waves from the nearby level 7 Galilean earthquake, but the Romans interpreted it as a sign of God's disapproval. Just one month later, Julian was killed in battle with the Sassanians in Persia leaving the throne to his successor, Jovian. Under Jovian and his successor, Theodosius I, Judaism seemed to regain some of its former recognition under the Roman government. The Patriarchate by this time had reached high status, both in Syria, Palestina, and the diaspora, and the Patriarch held a seat on the Roman Senate. Laws were passed that prohibited speaking ill of the patriarch and allowing Jewish leaders to make their own decisions about who would be excommunicated from the Jewish community. Synagogues also gained significant protection by the Roman government, with anyone caught committing violence against or trying to destroy or convert Jewish synagogues being severely punished. Theodosius I, upon his passing, left rule of Rome to his two sons, one in the east and one in the west leaving the Roman Empire divided for centuries afterward. And, beginning with this change of rule, Jewish status began to rapidly deteriorate in the Roman world. In 398 CE, a law was passed preventing Jewish courts from arbitrating civil cases, something they were previously permitted to do. In 415, Theodosius II banned any new synagogues from being built and ordered that all synagogues located in unpopulated areas Should be destroyed. By the year 429, the Patriarchate had formally been abolished, and in 535, the Emperor Justinian officially revoked Judaism's status as a religio licita in the empire, and ordered the conversion of all Roman synagogues into churches. He also enacted laws that denied Jews the right to compensation for property damage, and barred them from holding any public office aside from being tax collectors. This law included a ban on Jewish soldiers, a job the Jews had occupied for over a millennium in the ancient world. At the same time that the Roman Empire was slowly turning against the Jews, Christian leaders were doing much the same. They began to make numerous anti-Semitic proclamations, banning Jewish-Christian intermarriage, circumcision of Gentiles, and forbidding Christians from eating at the same table as Jews. The Christian fathers, though, were actually somewhat divided on how aggressively they felt about the Jews. Jerome of Striden, a Christian priest and theologian, later canonized as a saint, felt very strongly that the Jews were a perverse people who were directly responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus and should be condemned in the strongest possible terms by the church. Augustine of Hippo, on the other hand, felt that although the Jews did bear responsibility for Jesus' death, They were also God's chosen people and should be allowed to continue to live in order to keep the Old Testament alive. This idea has become known as the doctrine of witness. Another early Christian leader took an even more extreme position. He came from the city of Antioch, and to fully understand his context, we must first understand a bit about the city from which he came. Antioch was located in southwestern Turkey, and had held a significant Jewish presence ever since its founding in 300 BCE. The city's Jewish residents were initially soldiers who had been granted land in exchange for their services. And during the Hasmonean rebellion, many of them fought with Demetrius the Seleucid against the Hasmoneans. During the Roman era, Antioch's infrastructure expanded greatly, and many Jews immigrated there to join the already sizable Jewish population. By the late fourth century, Antioch was a bustling city, the third biggest in the entire Byzantine Empire. It had a cosmopolitan city center with shops, theaters, and many wealthy residents, while the poor lived in urban slums or worked in rice fields on the outskirts of town. In the surrounding hills, ascetic monks cloistered themselves away from the extravagance of the city. Aside from being large, Antioch was important for two other reasons as well. First, being on the border with Persia, It had become a frontline city in the constant battles between the Romans and Sassanians. And second, it was a very important Christian city. It had been the home of Paul the Apostle for almost a decade, and a number of other famous saints and martyrs were buried just outside the city gates. According to the Book of Acts, the very term Christian had been coined in Antioch. In 386 CE, however, times were turning sour for the Antiochians. The city had been experiencing a heavy drought, leading to rising food prices and increasing outbreaks of the plague. And with the battle against the Sassanians in full swing, increasing taxes were being levied against the people, causing frequent riots in the streets. Among this social upheaval, a religious battle was raging in Antioch as well, between the Christian establishment and their Jewish neighbors. Since the Greeks had ruled in Judea, the Jews had come to be seen by their Gentile neighbors as mystical keepers of ancient knowledge. Jews were often called upon to recite blessings over Gentile fields or vineyards, and Christians would not uncommonly attend synagogue to hear a rabbi's sermon, to have contracts signed, or to swear an oath. This fascination with Jews among high Christian society in Antioch became a significant concern of the Antiochian church, fearing that members might stray back to rejoin the Jewish religion. It was against this backdrop that a man, one of the most well respected and influential preachers of his day, set about discouraging this fraternizing with the enemy, which was called Judaizing. This man was called John Chrysostom, nicknamed John the Golden Tongued for his eloquent sermons. In 387, John penned eight sermons against the Jews, called Adversus Judaeus. In these homilies, John literally demonized the Jews combining ancient ideas of Jews as demons with the new notion of Jewish deicide, to warn Christians to stay away from them. He wrote, They sacrificed their sons and daughters to devils, outraged nature. They have become worse than wild beasts, and for no reason at all, with their own hands, murder their offspring to worship the avenging devils, who are the foes of your life. They are no better than pigs, hucksters, and wicked merchants, Shall I tell you of their plundering, their covetousness, their abandonment of the poor, their thefts, their cheating in trade? Unquote. John told his congregants that Jewish synagogues were home to demons and were worse than brothels. He says, quote, In their synagogues stand an invisible altar of deceit in which they sacrifice not sheep and calves, but the souls of men. Unquote. Of the shofrot that were blown on high holidays, John cautioned, quote, rush not to those trumpets, you should stay home to weep and groan for the Jews. Are you not afraid of dancing with demons, unquote. To the husbands whose wives might have attended synagogue on Shabbat to hear a sermon, John asked, quote, are you not afraid that your wife will not come back afterwards, unquote. Just in case they did find themselves in a synagogue, John advised his congregants to, quote, Make the sign of the cross on your forehead, and the evil power that dwells in the synagogue immediately takes flight. If you fail to sign your forehead, then the devil will take hold of you, naked and unarmed as you are, and he will overwhelm you with 10,000 terrible wounds." As if that couldn't get any darker, in his very first sermon, John had this to say. Many I know respect the Jews and think that their way of life is a venerable one. This is why I hasten to uproot and tear out this deadly opinion. Let no man venerate the synagogue because of the holy books. Let him hate and avoid it. Must you share a greeting with them, or exchange even a bare word? Must you not turn away from them, since they are the common disgrace and infection of the whole world? Do you not shudder to come into the same place with men possessed, who have so many unclean spirits, who have been reared amid slaughter and bloodshed? What manner of lawlessness have they not eclipsed by their blood-guiltiness? They sacrificed their own daughters to demons." Incredibly, in 398 CE, a decade after he published his anti-Semitic sermons, Chrysostom was elevated to the position of Archbishop of Constantinople and, upon his death, canonized as a saint. All of this anti-Jewish rhetoric seemed to have a significant influence on how ordinary Christians viewed their Jewish neighbors. They became ever more suspicious of the Jews, and rumors began to spread of Jews abducting and crucifying young Christian boys, or that on the Jewish holiday of Purim, Jews were staging mock crucifixions under the guise of celebrating Haman's execution. None of this, of course, was true. Although there had of course been inter-ethnic conflict between Jews and their neighbors in the past, This was the first time there had been no inciting event, no rebellion, no war, no grievous insult. Christians simply disliked Jews because they had the audacity to exist in the face of Christian revelation. And that's where we'll end this episode, with anti-Jewish racism rapidly spreading throughout Christian Rome. Next week, we'll have a look at the Jewish diaspora and see what was going on at the same time as the events of this. That's next week.